Thank you for the wonderful privilege to be with you these days. I've been grateful to get to know some of you whom I haven't met before and renew friendship with some whom I've been privileged to have met in the past. But of course, the great joy, as much as I enjoy and appreciate you, the great joy is in presenting to you the word of the Lord. Now we're returning this morning to the passage we've been looking at the last two evenings and dealing with the final part of First Peter chapter 1. But before we turn directly to it, I want to pick off or pick up where the Sunday school, or excuse me, the prayer meeting uh, instruction ended. That portion in First Thessalonians chapter 2, where there is a word of tremendous relevance there to our time and to the passage that we're dealing with in First Peter Now, a number of things were said concerning the passage, but uh, no particular emphasis was made upon these words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sin. But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. I would like to begin by reminding those who know this and informing those who do not that God has allotted a measure of sin to every entity. When that measure of sin is full, that entity is under the wrath of God to the utmost. Now, for some of you, that's a shocking statement. But in case you're suspicious of me, what I'm about to tell you was standard truth, often preached and readily understood in the churches before this terrible decadence set in. And before I open those words briefly, the passage in First Peter chapter 1 deals with love of the brethren. And in an absolutely glorious fashion opens up how and uh, the great benefit of true love in the church. But the church has been under the curse of a nasty spirit. Almost everywhere I go, 
I see an incredible lack of love to the brethren. And nothing grieves the heart of God more greatly than when brothers and sisters in Christ do not love one another with a holy, agape love. And in consequence, they fill up the measure of their sin. But think just briefly of this statement, measure of sin. I have suggested that God himself allots to each entity a measure of sin. Granted, the word entity is not used every day, and perhaps for some of you it has no particular meaning. When a fellow and a girl marry, they're a couple. That's an entity. When God blesses them with children, we now are more apt to describe them as a family. That's an entity. A church is an entity. A business is an entity. A city is an entity. You get the idea. Wherever there's a gathering, a natural gathering, we describe it as an entity, and to each of these entities, God has granted a measure of sin. And no one knows the size of that measure. Quite probably, there are variations in the size. The issue is not size or the number of sins. The issue is when it's full. That entity is under the wrath of God to the utmost. A very easy way to grasp the New Testament concept of this is to remember that after the second cleansing of the temple, our Savior mounted the hill overlooking the temple site, and he spoke these words, your house is left unto you desolate. Now, when he cleansed the temple, he described it as my father's house. He said, my father's house is a house of prayer for all the nations. Now, just Think carefully. What year did Christ speak those words, your house? Well, we don't know exactly. Because we're not absolutely certain what year Christ was born. Doesn't really matter, doesn't change anything. But let's just say, to make it easy whether true or false, because it doesn't matter. Let's say Christ was born zero. And when he spoke those words, it was the year 33. 
When was the temple in Jerusalem destroyed? Precisely as Christ said it would. Remember, he said, there shall not be one stone left standing upon another. Well, we know exactly when that happened. In the year 70, when an alien horde overran the city of Jerusalem and completely destroyed the temple. Now, it won't take a genius to answer the question, how many years between 33 and 70? But think, for somewhere in the range of 37 years, the temple stood. They continued to worship there. They gave their sacrifices and offerings. The priest continued with their routines. But God himself was never there. Every once in a while, a young man entering the ministry will say to me, Mr. Roberts, do you think it's possible to be called to a church where there is no hope of God ever doing anything? The answer, yes. If that church has filled up the measure of its sin, that doesn't mean it's closed. That doesn't mean nothing ever goes on there of a religious nature. It simply means God has left them. No, I hardly need to say this to you, but one of the reasons that churches start up churches like this is because there are so many existing churches where God is God. And the nature of the people and the wrath of God upon it to the uttermost makes it very clear they will never change. That's why we've got tens of thousands of churches in America where they have reached a plateau and are sliding backward. I don't know the exact statistics and they hardly matter, but there are vast numbers of churches where no one under 65 years of age attends attends, and just by natural attrition, that church is bound to close soon. Few people make it to my age, and I think all of you understand I'm living on borrowed time. I've had the three score years and ten. But now I mention that because this incredibly wonderful passage in First Peter that focuses upon agape love is so desperately, urgently needed today. And while I speak this with tremendous kindness, I ask you, how long will it take if this church follows 
the natural pattern before God has left. We hope, of course, never. But reality says we must be aware of the danger and we must be perpetually doing that which guarantees the presence of God in our midst. I was in a church for a long time, and two or three of the men got mad at me, and they spread the word that I was senile and must not be trusted in anything I said. Now, does that sound like a loving statement to you? It virtually destroyed the church. And what happened to me doesn't matter. I'm not making an issue of that. I'm simply saying that everywhere we look, there are such violations of love that God has departed from multitudes of church buildings never, ever to return. And the emphasis I made to begin with was upon the word entity. So I would not want to convey the idea that I'm speaking solely of churches. Think of the homes that are broken because love has been lost. Think of the institutions, educational and otherwise, where God is gone from them never ever to return. And with those thoughts in mind, let us then pick up the reading in this wonderful first chapter of the first epistle of Peter. 1 Peter 1, 1. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia who are chosen. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and mercy be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, 
who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, we greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace of God that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things which have now been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, gird up your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance. But, like the Holy One who has called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And, if you address his father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourself in fear during the time 
of your stay upon earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. But he has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers. The flower falls off. But the word of the Lord abides forever. And this is the word which is preached to you. Hallelujah. Now, in the first verse, verse 22, there are three things we must notice. Number one, obedience to the truth purifies the soul. Number two, the purified soul is free to experience unfeigned affection for the brethren. And number three, those with unfeigned affection are exhorted to love fervently from the heart. Now let's pay very careful attention to that incredibly helpful passage. We've been working our way through the chapter on Thursday. I tried to make it clear that the first 12 verses are wonderful verses for turning our faces upward, where there is that glorious review of 12 things that God has done for us in Christ. And I would think any time you're feeling droopy or discouraged or kind of down at the mouth, 
you would do well to come back and to reread those 12 verses and to take them one by one and to let their glorious truth fill your heart with joy and thanksgiving. But then we drew our attention in verse 13 to responsibilities that God has given us, direct commands that he has made. And there were five, remember, verse 13. Number one, gird up your minds for action. Number two, keep sober in spirit. Number three, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Number four, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lost which were yours in your ignorance. And number five, be holy like the Holy One who called you. Five absolute commands. And the glorious thing is, it is possible for mere human beings to keep God's commands. And it's possible because he made it possible through Jesus Christ. We don't have what it takes within us, but he has everything necessary and he's giving it to us in great abundance. And therefore, if we believe, we can truly keep these five specific commands. But then, last night, we were looking at those prods. Remember, I spoke of a cattle prod. These motivators, these incentives, and there were three in number that we looked at last night. There is the prod of fear. Every one of us will stand before our judge. And there is more than ample grounds for fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the only preservative against personal evil. The fear of the Lord is the only guarantee of social justice. But in addition to fear, as a motive which I acknowledged last night, is a worthy motive, but not nearly as good as the second and the third motivations. The second is the cost that Jesus gladly paid for you to be good. Good in that most glorious sense that even those who hated him had to acknowledge he is good. Good in the sense of pleasing to God. Acceptable. Made acceptable by the very righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to our account, but done so at the terrible price, the agony, the tears, the 
the bloodshed, the pain, the guilt on him of every one of us. And then the third motivator, the magnitude of salvation, the glorious plan in place before the first step of creation. Isn't it wonderful that as we go along, God doesn't suddenly gasp and say, Oh my, now what am I going to do? Look at what he has just done. How can I possibly handle that? Oh no. Long before you were born, God had a perfect plan for your eternal salvation. But now we come directly to this passage about the necessity of love. So I repeat again the three specifics of verse 22. All that obey the truth purify their souls. Number two, the purified soul. And let me insert this, only the purified soul is free to love the brethren. Let me underline that. Only the purified soul. There's simply no way that a person can love sin and love others. And that, of course, is the curse upon such a large portion of the American church. Multitudes of professed Christians who love themselves and love their sin and think somehow that they can both love sin and self and others. And then the third, fervently love one another from the heart. Well, number one, obedience is part and parcel of being a Christian. To say that you are a Christian and yet to disobey is sheer nonsense. Our Savior said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Tragically, a great many have been led to believe that faith is mental assent. They hear certain facts, and those facts they believe. And because they believe those facts, then they're told that they're a Christian. Well, now that would make Satan a Christian. That's good news, isn't it? You say, what do you mean? Well, let's state some of the facts that people are expected to believe, and which they think then makes them a Christian. Jesus Christ was the Son of 
God. Satan believes that more than you do. You believe it, I hope. Most certainly you should. But I bet you've had some doubts. I bet there have been moments when you wavered. Satan doesn't waver. He knows absolutely that Christ is the Son of God. Well, believe that Jesus died on a cross in your place. Satan believes that. He knows why Christ died. After all, he was the instigator on the part of the religious leaders who crucified Christ. He was with the mob that cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Satan believes Christ was buried. Satan believes Christ rose from the dead. After all, he suggested a way that they could get around the resurrection, say that the soldiers or the disciples rather came by night and stole the body away. And Satan knows that his arch enemy is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God on high. Who in their right mind would say that because Satan believes these facts, he is a Christian? And this believing in facts doesn't save Satan. Where do we get the call to think that believing the same things will save us? Isn't it wonderful in Hebrews 11, that magnificent chapter on faith, that every person listed there as having faith was given by God himself something to do. And they did it. And imagine the difficulty, for instance, of Noah build an ark. An ark. Oh, come now, Lord, you got to be kidding there's no water here. I, I, I don't see any reason to build an ark. And did you ever wonder how one man, apparently working by himself, managed to get those large beams in place that were necessary? And we know perfectly well that his Neighbors ridiculed him, taunted him. If somebody helped him, we're not told so. And it wasn't an overnight project. It wasn't even a three-month task. 120 years of labor. So we correctly say, faith is active obedience. A person who claims to have faith and yet will not do what God tells them is simply deceiving themselves. That great expositor of the Bible of uh, a couple generations back, 
Alexander McLaren made this wonderful statement. Faith, in its depth, is obedience. If our faith has any vitality in it, it carries in it the essence of submission. So let me pause and ask, are you obedient to every word the Lord speaks? Now, don't, don't misunderstanding. I'm not suggesting that uh, always immediate obedience, never, ever any wondering no, no, we are still what we are, people. Sometimes it does take us a spell to get used to the idea. I know when God called me to preach, I wasn't really resisting God. I just told God I'd be glad to do it, but it's impossible. And it was. I couldn't speak a word in public. But God assured me that in that he had called me, he would make it possible, I believe, in some measure, he has. I, I'm not trying to make you feel as if perhaps you don't have faith because sometimes it takes you a few moments or even a few days to get lined up with God's will. But when you have faith, Obedience will be there, even if it takes a little struggle, even if you have to wonder for a spell how it can happen. Well, now, what we're told in this wonderful 22nd verse is, since you have obedience to the truth. Now, what truth? All truth. God is truth. Jesus Christ is described as the way, the truth, and the life. Since you have through the truth purified your soul, Now let's think about what it really means to be obedient to the truth. I've already made the statement that if you regard iniquity, if you hang on to sin, there's simply no way you can love the brethren. But let me help you to get a hold of that in a deep way. Suppose that you tolerate in yourself the spirit of pride. Well, some of you know perfectly well that pride is maintained by comparison. Sir, will you stand? Stand right next to me. Now I ask you, which of the two looks best? <laughs> well, is it not obvious that this dear brother is much better looking than me? He looks a whole lot more fit. And I expect in dozens of ways 
he's vastly over me. Now, if he wants to maintain his pride, he just has to think to himself, I'm better looking than that old Mr. Roberts. I'm stronger than he is. I can run circles around him. We maintain our pride by comparison. Now, if he's comparing himself with me, how can he love me as he ought? How can anyone truly love anyone else if they're using that person as a stepping stone to an elevated position themselves? If you're going to love with an unfeigned love, the brethren, you're going to have to deal with pride. Thank you, sir. And it's not just pride, but think of any sin. I've got the little list here, and uh, it could be uh, miles long. How about dishonesty? If you tell little white lies, if you exaggerate just a wee bit, Do you not tell white lies at the expense of others? Black lies at the expense of others? Exaggeration at the expense of the truth and others? If you'll think about it, it's obvious. Every sin is against somebody. Suppose you commit fornication. That's against somebody. Suppose you commit adultery. That is really against somebody. Every sin is against somebody. And the most heinous aspect of all sin is that it is ever and always against the Lord God Almighty. You're going to know unfeigned love of the brethren. You've got to purify your heart by keeping the truth. What if you gossip? Somebody's hurt. What if you tell lies? What if you show favoritism? What if you exercise greed? What if you have a problem with theft? What about unrighteous anger? I had a very difficult time yesterday because a dear man of God needed to talk with me. And he told me how his wife, in all the years he knew her, was never able to control her temper. And she got into an awful rage and beat their daughter up. She was arrested. And then the shame that came upon her, she committed suicide. And the hurt on a 15-year-old girl whose mother committed suicide. You see what I'm saying. All sin is against somebody. And when we're sinning against somebody, we certainly can't love them. 
And when we're sinning against God, and I repeat, all sin is against God, then we demonstrate by our sin we do not love him as indeed he deserves to be loved and as indeed it is altogether wise and necessary for us to love him. So it could be stated this way. The purified soul is free to love. The unpurified soul is not free to love. It simply cannot be done. So let's pause now and be utterly honest with our own hearts. I have told you about the words found in 1 Thessalonians 2, the entity under the wrath of God to the utmost. When a church is made up of people who will not walk in obedience to the truth, they cannot love one another. And therefore, they drive the Spirit of God from them. And they end up with a place of worship where God himself never comes. And what I have just said of a building called a church could also be said of your own life. If you will not in obedience to the truth. Love the brethren. God will not remain with you. Now, in the same 22nd verse, there is this word, when you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Now, for those of you who care, remember what happened to Peter after he denied the Lord Jesus Christ and how Christ appeared on the shore while they were out fishing and when they pulled in to shore and Christ spoke to Peter He said, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter said, Lord, I filios you. The second time, Peter, do you agape me? Oh, Lord, I filios you. The third time, Peter. Peter, is the best you can say, I agape, or I filios you. That's it, Lord. That's the best I can say. The wonderful thing is in this passage, he proves that he got straightened out on this subject. Look again here. Verse 22, once more. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere filios, brotherly love, 
Then, fervently agape one another. He's got it right. Have you? When you purify your soul through obedience to the truth, then you feel brotherly affection. And then, when that brotherly affection is there, then you set yourself to fervently agape all the brethren. Throughout all of history, it is the loving church that has won the multitudes for Christ. It is the loving church that has sacrificed and met even in decayed buildings in order to pour great sums of money in reaching a lost world for Christ. But the self-centered, self-loving people build grand structures to worship in and give little pittance to the poor and the needy of the world. Brothers and sisters of this fellowship, Purify your souls through obedience to the truth so that you may truly have affection toward the brothers. Then set yourself to love them with a fervent love. Let's think about that issue of fervent love. How fervent is your love toward others? This fervent love is obviously to be constant. In the same First Peter, but chapter 4, verse 8, the same apostle says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sin. Most churches start out well, but few churches remain strong for any length of time. It'd be a terribly foolish thing to think that because God enabled you to make a good beginning, you are bound and certain to have a good ending. No, the good ending and the good middle. And it's the middle that ought to concern you right now. The good middle, as well as the good ending, are immediately wrapped up in this word fervent. Go out of your way. Go to extremes. Not for a temporary love of the brethren, but for an enduring constant love that is truly intense. Every visitor that comes should feel the intensity of that love. Isn't it wonderful when you yourself have visited a strange church and the first thing that gripped you was the intensity 
of the love that that church had both for the brethren and for the visitor. If this heart community is to be cracked, if you're to see what your hearts were set upon doing, it will happen because love has become truly fervent. Contagious. Oh, for a day when love, like a contagion, spreads across the city and multitudes are truly swept into the kingdom of God. Love with all the heart. And we are to love Christ or others as Christ loves us. Let's just take a wee bit of time to think. How does Christ love us? Ask the question, how does Christ prove his love to me? Why, his love is sincere. Now, that's the opposite to pharisaical. Sincere. How would you feel if some days you knew Christ loved you and other days you knew he despised you? And what would you feel like if you never had any way to know which day was which? Today he hates me. Tomorrow he loves me. We'd be, we'd be mincemeat. We'd be all ground up. We wouldn't know what to do. Christ loves us sincerely. You have the worst day of your life. And Christ's love is exactly the same as on the best day of your life. It's not that he's pleased when we disobey the truth. It's simply that he loves us. And his love is sincere. His love is fervent. His love is consistent. His love is pure and chaste. His love is full of mercy. His love is a long-suffering love. His love is a forgiving love. His love is an unselfish love. His love is an understanding love. And his love is truly a sacrificial love. Love one another as Christ loves the church. And start with purifying your soul. through obedience to the truth. Now, the next section is perfectly magnificent. Now, that's not to imply that the last section wasn't also, but just look at what we've got in front of us in verse 23. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable, that is through the living and abiding word of God. Now use your head. This dear brother has helped me. When you were born physically, was it perishable or imperishable seed? Perishable. 
You heard him? Perishable seed. Do you have any brothers? Are they as close to you as the brothers in this fellowship? He says no. And that's the way it ought to be. Those of us who are in Christ are born of imperishable seed. Our family ties on earth, those are the ties of perishable seed. Now that's not to depreciate family value and family love. That's just simply to say the love among the brothers and sisters in Christ is vastly deeper and vastly better and surely enduring. Now, when the angel appeared to the Virgin Mary, did he say to you, there will be implanted in you a perishable seed? No. Oh, think of this. Mary had an imperishable seed planted in her. The Lord Jesus Christ, born as a result of an imperishable seed. Now that same seed is what brought you into the kingdom of God. What gave you the life of Christ within? It's that seed that resulted in your regeneration. The better seed. The best seed. And have you been living in appreciation of the fact that the same seed that brought Jesus, our elder brother, on the scene and enabled him to become our eternal Savior is the seed that we spring out of as believers. Now, tragically, in this silly day in which we live, there are earthly families that are torn apart by dissension and lack of love. We wish somehow we could fix every torn family. But when the church is torn, as if everybody in it was the result of perishable seed, then indeed There is a tragedy of such gigantic proportions it's hard even to begin to relate to. Isn't it wonderful that everything that is needed for true unity in the church is ours already in our birth as a result of imperishable seed. Now naturally, when we speak along these lines... It would be appropriate to tie in this subject right here with the subject of birth. A lot of mistakes are being made in interpretation of Scripture 
I don't like arguments. I try to avoid them. But you can't preach the truth in the variety of places where I'm privileged to preach it without at least occasionally getting into a struggle. Now here's a question that's being debated across the land. Which comes first? Repentance and faith followed by regeneration or regeneration followed by repentance and faith. Remember when that prominent Israelite, that teacher in Jerusalem, Nicodemus, approached Christ by night? He said, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No man can do the miracles that God, that you do unless God was with him. But, contrary to the way some interpret the passage, Christ didn't reach out and embrace him and welcome him. Christ said to him, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that would have been a splendid time for Nicodemus to say, you got me on that one, I don't understand it, how about some help? But instead of asking for help, he objected. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And again, Jesus made it clear. Unless one is born again, he cannot enter. The first time he said you cannot see the kingdom of God. Second time, you cannot enter. Now let's just take that basic thing. Let me make a simple statement. And then I'd like, again, to ask you to engage your mind. It is impossible for the dead to do anything. How much time have you spent over the last month in a graveyard calling for the buried corpses to arise? Tracy, is that something you engage in regularly? She says, no. Is that because she doesn't care? No, it's not because she doesn't care. She knows the dead can't hear and push themselves up through the clouds of dirt. It's preposterous to preach to the living dead and to think that they can respond to Christ. You understand, don't you, that in John 3, what Jesus is doing is drawing a parallel between physical birth and spiritual birth. What color are your eyes, brother? One's blue and one's gray. One's blue and one's gray. Isn't that nice? God loves variety and so does Ricky. (laughs) Now, did you tell your parents to be... Before your conception, you wished one blue and one gray eye? No, sir. What did you tell them? I didn't say a thing. Do you believe them? 
didn't say a thing. Not one of us here made any contribution whatsoever to our physical birth. Don't be so silly as to think that you can contribute to your spiritual birth. If you could, then Christ isn't a very good teacher because he would be making a parallel where no parallel exists. Now, there is a wonderful parallel between physical birth and spiritual birth. Listen to these simple thoughts. There's always the element of mystery and wonder connected with birth. I remember very well, very well indeed, when our first child was born. Late Saturday night, actually, early Sunday morning. And the marvel of it, the wonder of it. And that morning, just a few hours later, I was preaching in a Reformed church in upstate New York. And I went and I said to them, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. If I were here another day, that's the passage we would take up the beginning of chapter 1. But the mystery, the marvel, well, in spiritual rebirth, there is mystery, there is marvel. Number two, the child that emerges in birth is never the cause, but always the result. Number three, a birth is always preceded by the implanting of seed. Number four, there's always a period of development in the womb following the planting of the seed. Number five, no child is born without at least some measure of birth pain. Number six, there's always new life in birth. Number seven, In most physical birth, the child brought forth is whole. With some sad exceptions. But now, in the spiritual rebirth, God never brings into the world a deformed child. The imperishable seed produces an imperishable child. We may die early, but death for the child of God is only a term without meaning. That's why the Bible so beautifully insists that we do not die. We sleep in Christ. Well, I've pressed the matter far enough. I just hope that you're in the grip of a glorious, thrilling realization that you were born of an imperishable seed. Now, notice what follows this. This is a perfectly wonderful thing as well. Verse 24, all flesh is like grass. All its glory 
like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. So, every person here is going to wither. I'm I'm already withered, obviously. My grandson approached me recently and he said, Grandpa, one of my grandsons, Grandpa, how tall are you? Oh, I said, taller than you. No, you're not. Well, I said, how tall are you? He said, five foot seven. Well, I said, I'm five foot eight. Oh, Grandpa, you are not. I said, it says so right here on my driver's license. So I got it out and showed him five foot eight. He said, stand back to back. He was an inch and a half taller than me. Then, a few days ago, I was in the doctor's office. You know, usually it's a routine way to take your weight. Then the nurse went out of the room, and there was a scale there with one of those rods that sits down on your head. So I thought, good, I'll sneak in an official reading here. (laughs) Five foot, five inches. The flower is fading. The body is withering away. Like the grass of the field, will soon all be gone. But only in the physical flesh. For that which was accomplished when the imperishable seed was implanted in us will just like the seed live forever. So why not? More now, than ever, and more and more with each passing day in obedience to the truth. Purify your soul. For the sincere love of the brethren and in your heart fervently love one another.